0: You're listening to audio from the St. Luke Church in Lexington, Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more or donate to this ministry, please check out our website at stlukelex.com. St. Luke. This is a place of hope and healing and wholeness. We're passionate about pursuing Jesus Christ together. We're glad you're here with us, and if you're joining us online, we're glad that you're there as well. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and it's a little bit long, so I'm just going to read it for you, but you can follow along on the screen if you'd like. It's chapter uh, 16, 24 through 17, 13. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any wish to come after me, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Then the disciples heard this, and they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Our scripture today comes at a pivotal point in Jesus' life and ministry, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But first, before we go any further, let me say this. For those of you who keep up with this sort of thing, I know this isn't the official Transfiguration Sunday. That was last week. I know that Lent began this past Ash Wednesday. We celebrated with a wonderful Ash Wednesday service and the imposition of ashes. And yes, this is the first Sunday of Lent. But all of these pieces fit together, I promise. All of this may be new information to you, too, and that's awesome also. Just know that there's a Christian year, a Christian calendar, if you want to call it that, and it has various Christian holidays on it. And it's one way that we're connected with Christians all around the world of various traditions. Okay. Okay. So, in the past few weeks, we've talked about forgiveness, and we've looked at building it with the prophet Haggai, and today, as we explore Jesus' transfiguration, we're looking at who we are becoming, and our study for the rest of Lent will be on how we are chosen by grace and how we're adopted into God's family. It's a beautiful, overarching theme of what God wants to do and is doing in our lives. Our passage today begins with Jesus talking with his disciples about what it means to follow him and what is required for those who do. And it really sounds pretty mysterious, maybe even a little contradictory if you think about it. Deny yourself, take up your cross, losing your life by trying to save it. But even as they're trying to figure out what he means, he underscores the importance of it by saying, for what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Jesus is saying, why would you want everything you want if you lose yourself in the process? Why would you want to have everything there is if you lose what really matters, if you lose your true self? What could possibly be worth that? Then Jesus talks about coming in glory and making things right, and he says something that's generated no small amount of discussion over the last couple of thousand years. He says, There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then we get to the heart of our passage. Six days after he said all these things, Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a mountain with him. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us which mountain they're on, but we know that any time someone goes up on a mountain in the Bible, something really big is about to happen. And indeed it did. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became bright as light. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, describes it like this. His face shone with divine majesty like the sun in its strength. And all his body was so irradiated by it that his clothes could not conceal its glory, but became white and glittering as the very light with which he covered himself as with a garment. White and glittery. I love that John Wesley said that. Isn't that fun? Can you picture that? So much light. So much radiance. Brighter than the brightest light. White, glittery light. Light. This Jesus that they've traveled with and learned from and known, or at least thought they knew, was somehow so much more than they could have ever thought possible. What an image. And then Moses and Elijah are suddenly there with Jesus talking with him. What are they discussing? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us, but it's right after that that Peter rather famously babbles, hey, Jesus, maybe we should build some shelters for you guys. Poor Peter. He gets a bad rap, doesn't he? (laughs) Sometimes I think he just says out loud what everyone else is thinking. And here he is, trying to think of something to say, trying to find some way to celebrate the moment. Really, it's just one way of trying to articulate the overwhelming magnificence of this glorious vision. But before he can even finish talking, a bright shadow suddenly overshadows them, a bright cloud And a voice from the cloud says, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And we know who that voice is, don't we? God says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Now, I find this very interesting. God doesn't say, look at all this magnificence. Look around. Isn't this cool? He doesn't say that. And there are truly a lot of things happening that are visually just breathtaking, It's beyond words to fully describe, actually. But God doesn't say, look. God says, listen. Listen to him. Listen to my son. Listen to Jesus. I'm very pleased with him. But just what are we supposed to be listening to? We're not really told much of what Jesus says in this scene. He isn't doing any teaching on the mountaintop, at least not verbally. He certainly shows them something important, and we'll get to that but just what are they supposed to listen to? Jesus isn't talking about what it means to be his disciple. He isn't teaching in parables, at least not right now. So what is it that God's referring to? He's talking about the teaching that Jesus has done and that he will be doing. God is saying, Jesus is my son, the one I've promised to send, and he's getting it right. He's doing everything I sent him to do. He's teaching you everything you need to know, so you need to listen to him. Of course, when the disciples heard the voice, they knew who it was. They knew, and they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. After that, they head back down the mountain, Jesus giving them instruction regarding what they've seen and them asking Jesus some questions and Jesus answering and giving some context. In other words, back to their regular life, if you can call it that. Back down the mountain, back to the day-to-day. We know now what they couldn't know then but would soon learn, don't we? We know that there's going to be some strange and horrible days ahead, Days of confusion and persecution and also days of unimaginable glory. The transfiguration is a revelation before Jesus' death and resurrection of the glory that was in store for him and for the disciples. This whole scene is actually one of the process of grace at work, one that's beautifully described by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says this, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus is telling them, things will get bad, but it will get better. Way better. This is who I am, and this is how things will be. It's a glimpse of the now, not yet. It's a peek at the heavenly reality in the midst of the day-to-day of our broken world. The transfiguration of Christ on the mountain is a convergence between heaven and earth. In one sense, heaven is never really very far away, as in Psalm 139, which says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? But heaven often seems very far away, too, and we need reminders that it's real. We need what the Celtic Christians have called thin places, places where the distance between earth and heaven is bridged. Thin places are where God's presence breaks through in powerful ways. And there's no other place in the entire Bible than here where the curtain between the material world and the invisible world is completely lifted visually. And there's no other place where the divinity of Christ is witnessed in such a dramatic way. In the Transfiguration, Christ did not receive something that he did not have before. He was not changed into something that he previously was not. In the Transfiguration, Jesus showed his disciples who and what he really is what the disciples saw was the same divine nature that Christ always had, even when they couldn't see it. It's the only moment in his earthly ministry when Christ is revealed as he truly is. Now, why did Jesus do this? And why did he do it when he did it? Well, Jesus wanted to give his disciples a view of the kingdom of God that he had talked to them often about, in anticipation of the difficult days that were to come. In that moment on the mountain, what Christ chose to do was to lift, even briefly, the curtain that separates this world from the presence of God and to give his disciples the experience of the kingdom. In other words, in addition to his earlier words of warning, he's also giving them hope. There was no way the disciples could understand what they saw and heard and felt, at least not yet. But eventually they would be able to tell their story, and the Holy Spirit would help them understand their experience. And not only that, they were also seeing something of their own destiny, although they wouldn't understand that for a long time to come. Now, what happens right before and after this passage is important. When this happens is important. Just before this, they've been at Caesarea Philippi, where Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ and that he's God's son. And from that time on, Jesus tells the disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem, that he will suffer, that he'll be killed, and that he'll be raised on the third day. And Peter famously scolds Jesus and tries to correct him and says, there's no way that's going to happen to him. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you are thinking human thoughts, not God's thoughts. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you have to start thinking God's thoughts. And that's the beginning of our passage today. Jesus and his disciples have recently begun this journey toward Jerusalem. They're on the way. On this journey, Jesus teaches about discipleship, denying oneself, becoming the least, becoming a servant, becoming like a little child. And maybe the three disciples are expecting this trip up the mountain to be kind of a a time-out or an interlude when Jesus takes a break from his teaching. Instead, however, the scene offers the disciples a glimpse of God's glory in the face of Jesus. The now and the not yet. This passage gives a glimpse into the glorious future that is to come at the very time when the reality of Jesus' death is coming closer. Not only does the transfiguration point forward, but we can also see the glory that Jesus set aside to become one of us. It's really quite an extraordinary passage, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's terrifying. It's compelling. It's convicting. It's mysterious. If we're honest with ourselves, even those of us who are pretty comfortable with the idea of the mystery of our faith can be a little uneasy when we read this. We think we know who Jesus is, and then, unless we just skim on past without really thinking about what's in this passage and what it reveals, we have to acknowledge that this isn't just one more stop in Jesus' ministry. It's not just a blip in the scripture. It's a revelation about who Jesus really is. This passage certainly is mysterious, and let's be honest, if our faith doesn't have some mystery, it's not really faith at all, is it? And this passage is important. It asks and answers some crucial questions, the crucial questions. This passage tells us who Jesus is. It tells us who we are. And it tells us who we are becoming. It's not just a bookmark for us to believe or disbelieve. It's not just a mountaintop experience that we can hope to aspire to as well. It's an intentional message. It's a revealing Jesus chose to show the disciples who he is and who they are, who they will be, who they are becoming. It's a glimpse at what lies at that thin place beyond the curtain that separates heaven and earth. And here we are, like the three disciples, getting a glimpse and then heading back down the mountain where we have work to do as Jesus' disciples, seeing the brokenness that still needs Jesus' light, doing Christ's work and becoming more like Christ. You know what Methodists call that journey, right? Sanctification. For John Wesley, sanctification, transformation in Christ, it's the whole point of conversion. As Brian shared a few weeks ago, God wants us saved, sure, but God also wants us whole, restored. Sanctification is the transforming journey of salvation that heals us and restores us and makes us whole. The way to heaven is the path of sanctification. It's not just a route. It's a participation. It's a foretaste of things to come. It's an alignment with our everyday life, with our ultimate destiny. This, as Jessica shared a couple of weeks ago, is the relentless optimism of Methodism. I love that phrase, don't you? The relentless optimism of Methodism. As we read and enter this story, we can begin to see and appreciate what was happening and what it meant then and what it still means today. We can at least begin to take in, take in, though without anything like complete understanding, the idea that shared in 2 Peter verse uh, 4 in chapter 1, that somehow we may participate in the divine nature. Somehow we participate in the divine nature. And we can perhaps begin in amazement and humility to reflect on John's promise in 1 John 3.2 that when Christ appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Now, that's a lot to take in, isn't it? Are you wishing you brought another cup of coffee in here with you? It's almost overwhelming if you really think about it too. And it may take a while for it to soak in and that's okay. Sit with it. Talk with God about it. And guess what? There's still another thing about this passage that I want you to notice. It's subtle, but I believe it's important. In verses 5 to 7, we hear this. While he, that's Peter, was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. Did you catch that? Jesus touched them. He touched them and he said, get up. Don't be afraid. Jesus touched them. Does anything eliminate our fears more perfectly than a simple human touch? That moment of connection that grounds us and it can assure us. And what happened in this moment? God, God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, God, whose greatness is so vast that not even the entire universe can contain it. God is so magnificent that he comes among us to reach out, to touch us, to calm our fears. Our passage today is in the Gospel of Matthew, as we've said, and I want you to think back to the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1. Do you remember the angel? What the angel says? The angel says, They shall name him Emmanuel, which is God with us. Jesus is God with us. And Jesus' hand on the shoulders of the disciples is God's own touch. God's touch, gentle and just a hand. Anything more in that moment might have been a little too much for the disciples. God is so vast, so magnificent, so utterly extraordinary. And he is still God with us. This is the way that God comes into the world, not simply in this brilliant cloud of mystery, not only as a voice thundering from heaven, but also as a hand laid upon a shoulder and the words, Don't be afraid. God comes to us quietly and gently so that we can draw near and not be afraid. The disciples could only take so much of God's glory at the transfiguration, and that would be the same for us as well, because God's glory and magnificence and power and majesty are unsurpassable. But in the transfiguration, Jesus shows us that God's glory and magnificence and power and majesty are surpassed by God's willingness to shed them all. The measureless power that made heavens and earth its shown out in a hand that reaches out to us today at the end of our passage Peter, jesus and peter and james and john head back down the mountain and as they do so jesus tells them to not say anything about what they've experienced at least not yet and he tells them again that they will have to suffer but they're still not ready to understand what he means jesus knows that they are faithful that they will be faithful, and he knows that they will need what he has revealed to them to sustain them in the coming days and in the years to come and as the Holy Spirit helps them understand all that Jesus has said and done and shown them. And of course, we know that hope can wane today too, even among faithful people. We say we're fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, right? But sometimes we struggle, and God knows that. God knows that we need to be reminded and he is at work transfiguring us and his creation that this time marked by suffering and death is only temporary. The transfiguration says, look, here shines the one in whom there is power to overcome death. We'll be receiving Holy Communion in a few moments and I'll say more about that in a minute. But following that, we're going to sing a song that many of you know. It's a new, not new, old, contemporary song with a catchy tune. And it's a tune that's so catchy, you might not have ever really paid attention to the words. But this time, sure, really enjoy the song. I know you guys love it. You trust me, right? I know you love the song. But also, listen to the words. Really hear the words because they're powerful. The song is Shine, Jesus, Shine. Hear these words. Lord, in the light of your love is shining, in the midst of the darkness shining. Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us, set us free by the truth you now bring us. Lord, I come to your awesome presence from the shadows into your radiance. By the blood I may enter your brightness. Search me, try me, consume all my darkness. As we gaze on your kingly brightness, So our faces display your likeness, ever-changing from glory to glory. Mirrored here, may our lives tell your story. Blaze, Spirit, blaze. Set our hearts on fire. Send forth your word, Lord, and let there be light. You know, it would be easy for us to be content with a very limited, gradual change that falls far short of complete transformation. But as we look to our destiny in Christ, a very different picture emerges. God sees more in us than we see in ourselves. God sees the fulfillment of his original purpose for our lives, the restoration of us in his own image. God wants us to return and to be restored. God's grace doesn't just save us, it transforms us. We are being transformed. We are being sanctified. We're being completed. We're being perfected. We are becoming Christ-like. God has adopted us into his family for a purpose. Our passage today shows us, as the one, shows us the one who shines, the light. The disciples saw in Jesus, it expressed truth and wisdom, goodness and righteousness. It expressed hope and expressed the transforming presence of God. John 1, 4-5 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. And as Jesus' followers, we carry his light into the darkness of this world. In our passage today, we saw how Jesus revealed just as much of who he is as the disciples could handle. We know that God is too big to be contained by the walls of a church, right? We know that God is so great that heaven and earth cannot contain him. God is certainly so great that he could never be contained in something as small as a crumb of bread or a sip of juice. And we know that God is so great, so majestic, so glorious that God comes to us in a crumb of bread and a sip of juice just as much as a hand can hold. And so we'll be entering a time of communion. We're actually going to be offering communion every Sunday during Lent this year, and it'll be a part of our Lenten journey together. Holy Communion is an instrument of God's grace. John Wesley said it's the duty of every Christian to receive Communion as often as they can. Receiving it only every month or even every quarter was actually a holdover from the American frontier because there weren't enough ministers to offer it on a more frequent basis. It's an important practice, though. It's a sacrament. It's an ordinance. It's something that Jesus has called us to do because when we eat and drink at the table, we become partakers of the divine nature in this life and for life eternal. When we receive Holy Communion, we are anticipating the heavenly banquet celebrating God's victory over sin and evil and death. In the midst of the brokenness in which we live, we yearn for everlasting fellowship with Christ and the ultimate fulfillment of God's divine plan. Nourished by sacramental grace, we strive to be formed in the image of Christ and to be made instruments for the transformation of the world. So let us pray. Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Holy are you, and blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night that Jesus gave himself up for us, he took the bread and gave thanks to you. He broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Mighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood.